0: Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Fish. Before we begin, just to let you know that we have a special guest on this week. Andy is away looking at thatched roofs around the UK. And so in his place, we have got the brilliant Ella Al-Shamahi. Ella is a National Geographic explorer. She's a paleoanthropologist, an evolutionary biologist, a stand-up comedian. She's extraordinary. And she's written this new book, which is called The Handshake, A Gripping History. It's all about, as it says on the tin, the handshake. You know, where did it come from? How long have we had? Added, is it dead after this pandemic? It really is an awesome book. It's got amazing chapters. I mean, take this as a chapter headline. Chapter number three, Finger Snaps and Penis Shakes. Who doesn't want this book? So do go out and get it. It's available online. You can go back into physical bookshops as well to pick one up. And do follow her adventures online as well. She can be found on Twitter on at Ella underscore Alshamahi. Do that because she is packed with facts.
1: That's right. And you'll be getting a bit of a taster of those in the upcoming episode. But sadly, of course, Andy is going to be back next week. And he's also going to be joining us for our upcoming tour. We couldn't convince Ella to come on that instead. But yeah, we've got a tour coming up. Please join us. We are going to... Lots of fun places, Belfast, Birmingham, Nottingham, Peterborough, Richmond, Dublin, and then loads more. Go to fish.com to get tickets right now. Okay, on with the show.
2: Hello.
0: Welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from four undisclosed locations in the UK. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with James Harkin, Anna Tashinsky, and our special guest. It is paleoanthropologist Ella Al-Shamahi. And once again, we have gathered around our microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Ella.
3: My fact is that an anti-handshake society was formed in Baku, Azerbaijan, in 1894 because of a cholera outbreak. Um, you paid six rubles as membership. You wore a pin to identify yourself. And just in case you did slip up and shake hands, you had to pay three rubles as a fine.
1: Wow. So you're volunteering to be fined. If you didn't join the society you didn't have to be fined.
3: Yeah, I mean there's a there's a question about the the money there, isn't it? Six as membership and then 3 every single time you shake hands. Yeah,
0: but if you're signing up you're fairly confident that you're not going to be doing any handshaking, right? Like I guess so. that's
3: it's like but instituting love... the swear box or something. Exactly. It's like exactly. a
4: swear jar.
3: yeah. But I love the pin that, you know, it's basically declaring that you're really not involved at all. Mm. You're not having any part of it.
4: Do you think that pin is so that people can see you and think that guy is not to be handshook?
3: I think so. I think was to identify yourself, but I do have questions about how many people were actually wearing these pins. You know, it was it just you and Mike down the street, or was it actually a lot of people wearing it?
0: I don't. I, you're talking about it like it was a police badge. I don't think anyone was staring at the badge anyway. It was probably a badge that was like, I love Ninja Turtles. That you know, I would wear. Like, yeah, it's on me, but no one's no one's paying attention, right?
3: I mean, who knows? This is this is way back. This is over 100 years ago. But the thing that I love about this bit is that the Lancet, of all things, which is obviously a really respectable medical journal, absolutely blasted them for this and just blasted them for not refusing to shake hands during an epidemic, which is hilarious, obviously, today. And they're basically like, oh, these Russians, they've taken everything too seriously. They've completely lost it. And obviously, that has not aged well, has it? <laughs> yeah. So
1: they knew that shaking hands was going to be bad for this of cholera this is why they did
3: it so yes this society knew it obviously generally the people in that area didn't and more importantly the whole of the western medical establishment thought they were lunatics so this is a story that just kept getting repeated everywhere kind of in that that period just mm-hmm. people going well, what is going on with these russians i mean they're azerbaijani <laughs> but at the time it was you know they were declared as russians
4: yeah that was a really bad cholera outbreak in um, baku it started in 1892, and when it first got into the town, and they didn't have a single microscope in the entire city, uh, and everyone realized that there was this problem with cholera, and everyone just fled the um, city had 120,000 people at the start of June. And by the end of June, there were only 20,000 people left in Baku. And so basically people had fled out of Baku, but it meant that they'd taken cholera with them on the trains and the boats to the whole rest of uh, Russia. And then there was a cholera outbreak for two more years in the whole of Russia. And in Baku, they had four doctors who were in charge of all the different sanitary sections of the town. And they were called Arkhangelsky, Akundov, Lockerman and Doctor Corona. <laughs> oh, can you believe dude. that? It's Russian wow. for crown, but he was called Doctor Corona. Yeah, that's amazing. How, how come they that- spread
1: it? Because cholera is pretty hard yeah. to spread person to person. It's you've got to be drinking their poo.
4: Well, it's, this is like be... a misconception,
1: right? In the olden days, and actually, handshake avoiding handshaking probably wasn't fully necessary unless someone had just wiped their bum.
4: It can, um, it can go on clothing and on bedding and stuff like that. So I think that was one, one way it went.
3: So I actually think that's why the Lancet were having a go at them because the Lancet rather racistly were like, oh, the Russians have terrible sanitation and their solution is just not to shake hands. They're being absolutely ludicrous as opposed right. to, you know, like, uh, but it's it's an interesting one. Yeah, because they do say that it's not really touch that gives you cholera. Although mm. actually refugee camps, um, all um, workers there are told not to shake hands and to mm. have distance if there's a cholera outbreak. So oh, really? presumably it's a little bit. Yeah, it's
4: faeces getting in your mouth. And if you have yeah. feces on your hands, then, you know, if you've got Which pooey we hands, do? <laughs> you could have traces. I mean, it's yeah. easy to get
0: traces, isn't it? Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, I, I think found- it's just it's only just the point that it, people often thought that it was really bad to be around people who had cholera in the olden days. And people would try and keep them in a different room. But actually, largely, it's just from drinking infected water. And it's so horrible when you read these tales of people being so terrified and fleeing. It's, just, it's so easy to treat it must be the easiest disease on earth to treat, right? You die of dehydration. You could die within two hours of getting it. But if you just drink, and if you drink rehydration salts, if you're super dehydrated, or if you just neck water constantly, you're basically fine.
3: Um, okay, so, so we're saying that uh, it is water, but uh, and there might be traces, but do you guys know that only 19% of people globally actually wash their hands after a number two?
4: Do they? really? Well,
3: only 19%. I suppose you so. can take
4: out all the men, so it's you know 19% of the 50% of the women you know everyone knows that no men wash their hands after they go to the toilet so
3: what is that a what? thing yeah I heard that they actually did a study of um of what's it call it uh thingy stations service stations uh the men's toilets and it was not it was not a good
0: site <laughs> yeah. oh okay well that's that's a that's a whole different world a men's toilet in a service no station.
3: not in that way dan i mean just in terms of washing your hands afterwards
0: well yeah. no you don't want <laughs> to touch anything even the, the even the washing of the hands you know pressing the the tap down i feel like i'm going to get a disease in a place like that so that's that's a place where you touch nothing except yourself and then go out but i don't mean <laughs> oh that like is that. that does happen a lot in service stations yeah i must say <laughs>
3: But you do wash your hands though there, Dan, right?
0: Uh, not in service stations. I'll, I'll happily admit that. I don't touch anything.
1: <laughs> I do think men's toilets are worse because they get clean less often. I think that's a thing. Or perhaps this is
3: just a thing that... No, I husbands think they're just not very clean. About. You what? You think they're just not I just clean? Don't think, like, do you think any woman would just admit to what Dan just admitted to? <laughs>
4: <laughs> so I think the problem is not admitting to it, is really what we're saying here. <laughs> we're just liars. Um, just on the handshakes, one more thing in, um, in Russia. This carried on for a while, and in 1918 in St. Petersburg, there was a quite a common slogan called "Down with the handshake," and you could again buy little badges, um, which had "Down with the handshake" on, because people thought the handshaking was bad. And there was a union of simplifying greetings in the 1920s, uh, which not only banned handshakes, it also banned hugs and kisses. And Bulgakov writes about it in one of his early stories called "Devildom."
3: My problem with all of this is whenever we kind of talk about the handshake. you know just how gross it is how many people weren't shaking hands etc etc at various times because of things i always just think once upon a time on our planet there were penis handshakes and we're mortified. Dad still by. does that
4: in the welcome break every week, <laughs> don't you? <Dan>? <laughs> <laughs> what is a penis Just, handshake? Is so that two are, penises are, shaking or one hand? No, and no, one no, penis, no, no, no. That's
3: that's not, no. It's one hand shakes shakes the penis. And this was this was okay. by one one tribe in Australia. Um, and uh, it, you know, it's only recently extinct. I think it became extinct in the 1950s. So what it is is uh, one village, one group of people from one village comes to another group. Um, the The visitors, uh, they offer their their penises uh-huh. um, to the to the people who are home, you know, who are at home. Basically, yeah, it's like bringing and, a bottle of
4: wine to a pub, exactly, yeah.
3: exactly. If the men at home, if one of them refuses to to shake it that's akin to a declaration of war. So wow. then the panicked visitor offers it to all the other guys in the hopes that one of them shakes it because if one of them shakes it it's basically we vouch for you mate. He's probably all right. Fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely wow. amazing. Oh my
0: god. How how long did this last for? You said it ended in what the 50s?
3: Yeah, so the last reference so the the reference we have of it kind of a really detailed anthropological study was in the 1950s. And then we don't really know anything after that. And it's just really hard to know what really went down, if that makes sense. But also because, I've got to be honest, as an anthropologist, sometimes I feel like anthropologists turn up somewhere and tribes just do whatever they want. Yeah. <laughs> and like, and there's always a bit of me that's like...
4: So you think this tribe is like, mm. yeah, we do this every day, mate. Yeah, of course we do. they behind yeah. the corner, they're just giggling to themselves, going, I believe you swallowed <laughs> it. Not literally swallowed it, but yeah. <laughs>
0: um i found it really fascinating reading about handshakes both historical and modern ones and some of my favorite ones that i've discovered uh probably my favorite whenever prince charles used to participate in a tree planting ceremony He'd always give one of the branches a handshake and wish it well before leaving. Wow.
1: What was that the penis handshake or your standard just hand on twig, right?
0: Just hand on twig. Oh god, yeah. Charles mob out, just waiting. For the wind to brush a branch against it. <laughs> oh
3: if he doesn't accept, he goes to the other trees. Please, one of you. <laughs>
1: Um, What I found really interesting about this fact, what I liked about it, the initial fact, is just the idea that we've been doing some of the same stuff for so long. You know, we say there's a disease spreading, don't handshake today. The same back then. And I hadn't quite realised how widespread that advice was around pandemic time. So there was like it it went out of fashion basically always when there was an illness around, didn't it, in the early 20th century.
3: You're right. You keep seeing it time and time again. So Prescott, Arizona actually banned the handshake during the Spanish flu. They just made it illegal. Um, Ah. And you do see stuff like that during different pandemics and epidemics. People either shun it or they actually completely ban it. Um, Mm. So it's not the first time at all. Do you know if they had handshake
1: police sort of going down the street throwing people apart? I suppose they must
4: have. I'd love to have that I'm
3: not really sure how they would have policed it. I guess it's like everything. How on earth do you police any of this stuff? I guess you you would just
4: grass on your neighbours doing the handshakes, wouldn't you? That's what yeah
3: usually I mean, happens. Yeah, it's probably like today you can't police any. Slight like, <laughs> like diversion, but like I was, I was in like um, Yemenis are very, very. I'm fa- um, Yemeni originally. Yemenis are very famous for um, polygamy. Like it's a really big thing. Te- men tend to have loads of wives. I was in a cab. There's a Yemeni taxi driver, um, and I was like, "How's your, how's your dad handling lockdown?" And he was like, "Oh, he's been a bit naughty. He went out and visited his second wife." <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> right. I was like, first of all, that's so typically Yemeni. Secondly, how?" How do you police that like i'm gonna go see my second wife Like, how are the police gonna get involved with any of this stuff
0: yeah yeah that's wow. just an extended bubble isn't
2: it <laughs> <laughs> but no. um,
0: ella there's a thing that you say in the book which i found quite surprising i think when you read facts about handshakes a lot of um A sort of very classic fact that's out there, which turns out to be wrong, is that the handshake was sort of came about during medieval times to show you didn't have a weapon in your hand and that you were presenting an open palm to show you. But that turns out that's, well, according to your book, completely wrong, right?
3: Yes yes <laughs> my research very much is is against this uh, but i love that i've now become the authority on the handshake in this country like i just don't know how this happened but i'm completely loving it of all the random things uh, but yeah i think I the basically... sport was open there wasn't <laughs> an established handshake authority <laughs> all right Anna, all right all right so uh, come on. All. no but um, yeah it, so i i kind of looked into it and it just never made any sense um, and my argument is that the handshake is biological and i've got two arguments for this um, to support it rather one is that um, Chimps shake hands. So chimps and bonobo shake hands. Uh, Dr. Kat Hobater showed that... Um, the the chimp handshake actually has a very similar meaning to our own. So she's got like, for example, videos of two chimps kind of really going at each other in a fight and then kind of sheepishly walking up to each other and shaking hands to make up, which is oh, adorable. Wow. So if you think about it, our closest living relatives are the chimps and bonobos. It kind of makes sense that, you know, that's by descent. So I'm arguing that the handshake is 7 million years old. But the coolest bit um, that kind of supports this is that we actually transfer chemo signals, chemical signals via handshakes and there's data to show that we actually sniff our hands afterwards, um, and I know that sounds absolutely yeah. mad but chemo signals are something a lot of us don't really realize are actually going on so I think we accept that you know the animals in the animal kingdom um, communicate with each other chemically but we like to think that our communication is all via like sonnets and you know language <laughs> and what have you but it's it's absolute bull because we do communicate with each other chemically um, so they they did these crazy experiments where they got gauze they put it under people's armpits they got them to watch you know stressful films or happy films and then they took that gauze to a different group of participants and they go point to the bottle that has gauze in it that uh, oh. is like smells like happiness mm-hmm and they were getting it right more than you'd expect ah. by chance.
1: Which... So, our, so when we shake hands, you're saying we're trying to tell someone I'm really happy or I'm freaking out. And we're hoping that you smell your hands afterwards and you go, oh, God, are you OK? I yeah. yeah.
3: The, there's uh, one institute, the Wiseman Institute, that actually put hidden cameras on people and they showed that people were more likely to put their hand to their nose and take a sniff after they shake hands than if they greet in a different way. So it's, it's we're just animals. Basically,
4: whenever I close a Zoom call, I always sniff my computer afterwards as well, just in case <laughs> I can gain some information. Uh,
1: Anything? Is your computer sad?
4: <laughs> no, but I've had cholera quite badly this whole time.
1: <laughs> right. So we do know it's covered in your own feces.
4: <laughs> I think most people could have worked that out anyway.
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is my fact. My fact this week is the 2013 recipient of the Amelia Earhart Pioneering Achievement Award, who later successfully completed Amelia Earhart's fatal circumnavigation of the world, is called Amelia Earhart. (laughs) What? Did she change her name? All right. she did not. She did not change her name. Really? She was born Amelia Rose Earhart. She was named that by her parents because they wanted to inspire her by pairing her up as a namesake to one of the great aviators of all time. And I don't believe that there's any kind of aviation history in her family. Um, she tried to find out if she was actually descended from Amelia Earhart in any way, if she was a relative, because uh, they lived fairly close to each other. And it uh, turns out there's nothing that connects them. She hired a genealogist who looked into it and said that she was connected as far back as the 1700s. And then she found a sort of second advanced team who said there's absolutely no traceable connection. So so weird. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So my brother uh, is having a kid and we're like, names aren't important. And now I'm like, nah, names are definitely, definitely important. Like, that is <laughs> yeah. so random.
4: I think if you want someone to win a prize and you actually give them the name of that prize, like... If your brother decides to call his um, child the Nobel Prize for chemistry or something, and he might have a chance.
1: <laughs> I mean, he won't have a chance in school
3: of making friends, but he may have a chance having the Nobel
4: Prize. But, you know, having friends, it just detracts from all that time you could spend doing chemistry, doesn't it? That's the thing. Yeah.
3: <laughs> but, uh, hold on. So, so she was the first, she couldn't have been the first person to, to, to then redo it.
0: No, no, she wasn't the first person to redo it. She, um, she's, she's the second youngest ever to do it, though, um, which is a pretty amazing feat in itself. Um, no, it was done solo by another person a few years beforehand. The media reported that she had done it because I think it felt like a better story. Uh, yeah that Yeah, the yeah. Namesake <laughs> did it. And I'm sorry, when success- you say
1: because I couldn't help noticing that in your wording, you said she successfully completed Amelia Earhart's fatal circumnavigation. <laughs> oh, yeah. So she didn't complete the fatal bit, right? She decided to remain alive throughout. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. She survived.
0: Yeah. Cool. It was it
1: was
4: a cheat. I'll <laughs> be really sticking to the cause, wouldn't it? To think, well, I've have really got to follow her into her footsteps and disappear as well. That yeah. yeah,
3: especially not knowing where she disappeared. Like that's quite a, quite a feat. Well.
0: The thing is, though, we so we don't know the exact spot where Amelia Earhart disappeared, but we know roughly the area. It's Howland Island is the general area. This is a place that is in the Pacific Ocean. It's halfway between Hawaii and Australia. There were ships in the immediate area that were on radio contact with Amelia Earhart, trying to help guide her there. So it was her. It was her co-pilot who really. Doesn't feature much in this story, you know. No. You I know, know right? Like, don't don't <laughs> die next to someone famous, you know. Don't be <laughs> next to someone famous. This really is the great example of that because most people didn't even know there was another dude there they <laughs> no. just think it was her
1: I always thought so. she tried it alone yeah, and I I couldn't believe I found myself researching this and thinking we've really got to rejuvenate the reputation of the man in this
0: story
2: because <laughs> way too much kudos
1: for it
0: Fred Noonan and he was a navigator he was brought on to be able to navigate using the stars and help them find where she was going she was going to do a lot of it solo but I think he was so good at what he did that he sort of hitched the ride for much more of it than he was meant to and he's a guy who was known for surviving stuff he used to be a he used to work on ammunition ships uh, during wars and his he was on three separate vessels that were all sunk by u-boats and he survived so, you know, this is a guy with a good survival rate. And, I would um, think
1: of that as a oof. bad omen, because that <laughs> certainly implies that my plane's going to go down and crash and I'm going to die, but he'll walk away scot-free. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah.
3: This is like, I went through a five-year period every time i turn up on an expedition somewhere that was coming out of war, suddenly would go straight back into war the minute I would turn up. Oh, and it was like, my brother was like, do you think you're cursed? And I was like, maybe.
4: <laughs> is it true that Amelia Earhart got ripped apart by crabs? That's what I always read at the end
0: well this is one of the latest theories so so howland island is the island that she was meant to be landing on there's another island next to it which is gardner island and it's thought that that is where she turned and landed on a reef survived and then was eventually killed by giant crabs which ate her carried her bones to the um the holes that they dig and left her down there so that is a theory and one of the last expeditions, which I believe happened in about 2017, 2018, they had bone-sniffing dogs to try and find her. And bone-sniffing dogs can smell quite far down. Mm. And so the hope was is that they were going to find her. And I think they found some bones, but I don't don't think it was hers.
1: That is a dog's dream job, isn't it? I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna literally employ you to find bones.
4: Yeah, that is amazing. <laughs> it's, the only better job is chasing postman, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Um, Yeah, I think they did an experiment where they tested how well she could have been consumed by these crabs. And it was coconut hermit crabs, which we must have mentioned before, and they are giant crabs. They're the largest land crab. They're like three feet wide. They can kill birds and climb trees and stuff. And their claws produce double the force of a tiger's bite. So they can just crunch through bones. And I think the scientists took a pig carcass to the beach where they found these sort of remnants that could be Amelia Earhart. I think they found like lipstick remnants and stuff. So they thought she'd been there. So they brought a pig carcass to the beach and they left it there. And there's a time-lapse that I believe you can watch, which shows the crabs just destroying this thing, turning oh, it to nothing within a week. Right it's me. really cool. But she wasn't killed by them, which should be clear. Although that would have been an awesome way to go.
0: Well, we don't know. We don't know anything. We don't know.
1: She might have been murdered by a coconut crab. Yeah.
0: <laughs> There's so many theories, aren't there, that have come out about this over the last 70-odd years about her disappearance. And everything from alien abduction through to she was captured by Japanese soldiers and was broadcasting as Tokyo Rose Mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, all stuff like that. Um, It's it's pretty exciting when you go through the big list.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I know you guys deal with facts, but in terms of feelings, do you think that, you know, if if she was in any way kind of aware of what was going on, there's a bit of her that's like, damn, I didn't I didn't succeed, but they're still obsessed with me. Do you know what I mean? Like the world is still like, what happened to Amelia Earhart? Yeah.
1: I hope she's yeah, she's up there going, Thank God they've forgotten all about that Noonan guy. <laughs>
4: She was really um, pro kind of getting as many women to fly aeroplanes as possible, wasn't she? Uh, she was the first um, president of the 99s, uh, which was a group of women who um, basically... They were dedicated
1: to ice creams, weren't they? That was
4: it. That was all they used to do, just eat ice creams all day. Um, yeah. They had 99 problems, uh, but a flake <laughs> wasn't one. Oh, God. Oh God. <laughs> uh, but they really, um, basically the first... Um, licenses you could get in America were in 1927 and within two years there were 9,000 men with licenses and only 117 women and so they started this club to try and encourage more women to fly uh, and there were some amazing people who were part of it. There was uh, one woman called Opal Kuntz, um, who was part of the 99s uh, and she was one of the first women to, um, sorry what?
3: No, no, no let's not brush yeah. over that. Could you just say the name once more?
4: <laughs> Opal Kuntz. Cool. Uh huh. Um, Opal Kuntz was uh, one of the first people to fly against men in races, uh, and she used to win them as well. She used to; she was a really, really good racing pilot. Uh, and there was a thing in 1929 where it was the first women's air derby, where they went all the way across America from um, Santa Monica to Cleveland, Ohio, uh, and the newspapers called it the Powder Puff Derby uh, because it was all women taking part. There were 40 people who took part and she would have won it, but they said that her aircraft must have a horsepower appropriate for a woman. In (gasps) other words, her plane was too fast. They wouldn't let her fly it. So she had to fly in a slower aeroplane and she came seventh.
3: I want to use her surname to describe them. Is that bad? Uh, No, Uh. (laughs) you're quite
4: right. Uh, And then the other thing about the 99s is Amelia Earhart had a thing called the Hat of the Month programme and she would give it to whichever member of the club flew to the most airports wearing a Stetson hat that she'd designed herself. Oh, cool. That
1: is so weird because she initially preferred hats to planes. This is her origin story. Amelia Earhart, it's really great. She wrote a diary that's quite detailed, so we know lots about what she thought, and she saw her very first aeroplane when she was 10, at the Iowa State Fair. And there are planes there. And so she was uh, 10 years old, she saw this plane and was like, I wasn't interested at all. It was just a bunch of kind of wood and wire. And someone said, look, dear, it flies. And she said, I was much more interested in an absurd hat made from an inverted peach basket that I just bought and so that's that was her first love so maybe she was all about the hats the whole plane thing was so that she could get this Stetson hat competition going. I think
0: you're right she had her own fashion label didn't she I think. Yeah back then it was really hard to fund all of these projects and she wrote some books and she used to go on lecture tours but one of the other things she did was become one of the first for the modern era celebrity fashion designers And she had her own line, this Amelia Earhart fashion line, where she would incorporate bits of airplane onto the clothing as well. So she would have wing bolts and she would have, you know, sort of little... Did she invent
4: that, um, you know, that hat that people wear with a a rotor on the top of it? Did she invent that?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I wish she did. No, I don't think so.
3: (laughs) I'm, go- I'm going to speak to my expedition buddies because right now we're trying to approach like Dell to give us like funding, and I'm like, no, no, guys, let's let's just go, you know, design a fashion line, yeah, <laughs> to fund our expeditions.
0: <laughs> it kind of pioneered fashion a bit as well, didn't it? Um, because up until then, women were wearing one piece suits uh, or dress or, or it was always one thing and she with this fashion line created the idea or at least popularized it quite nicely separates the idea of matching this with this this skirt with this jacket with this shirt you know you buy in different pieces and that really wasn't a thing back then and she kind of pushed it uh, to be as part of her line wow
1: wow
4: um ella what was the name of that company that you want to give you some money for your next exhibition <laughs> was it dell the makers of amazing computers that everyone should go and buy computers yes. from
3: dell but i'll take ibm i'll take anyone <laughs> <laughs> like, i will take anyone and then i will okay i need to stop actually because <laughs> i actually do need funding
2: <laughs> i will take anyone
3: <laughs> yeah Dell will all ready <laughs> to
1: sign off on that you know until you sort of pimped yourself out to all of their competitors um, uh oops. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> um, Do you know she did have one successful fundraising thing, which is what did fund her trips, and that was carrying letters. So No She, she
3: wasn't a carrier pigeon. She was a <laughs> she, she, she was a postwoman.
1: Okay? This is this is actually her career. No, she was um she had this idea of basically crowdfunding by saying that she would take letters that people had written with commemorative stamps that said, like, I went all the way around the world with Amelia Earhart, or I went over <sighs> the Atlantic with Amelia Earhart. Right. So I think across the Atlantic, she had 100 or so commemorative stamps, and she'd sign them. And on her round-the-world trip, that plane, when we find it, will have 5,000 stamped <gasps> letters in. Uh, and she said that she's... Nah. It must have been such a hassle on every stop along the way, she had to postmark every single one of those letters. She <laughs> <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> with a sack 5,000 letters down to the local post office in wherever... Hawaii. I
0: wonder if I wonder if they told the bone snipping dogs, you know, she used to be a postwoman just to give them <laughs> that extra bit of incentive.
3: <laughs> uh, oh you know what? This makes me feel better that even Amelia Earhart struggled with financing her expeditions. This is just <laughs> this is information I needed, Anna. Bless you, thank you.
1: That's offer to deliver mail as part of them. Where are you next going? I'm sure there are people who have
3: Somaliland? <laughs>
1: like Perfect. If anyone's got a friend in Somaliland, you need to write a letter. LSD woman. (laughs) (laughs) She she charges a grand a letter. Thank
4: you. Um, So Amelia Earhart was the first woman to to fly solo across the Atlantic. Um, But she was actually the first woman to cross the Atlantic in a plane where she wasn't a solo flyer. Uh, And that was when she was a guest in the plane of Wilma Stultz and a guy called Slim Gordon. And she spent the flight crouched in between the fuel tanks of the plane. So she went as a passenger over, but she said that she was no more useful than a sack of potatoes. Um, And when they asked her, potatoes. Yes, they are useful, actually. Less useful. You can make them into loads of different things potatoes. They're probably
0: one of the most useful of all the vegetables, aren't they?
4: They're more (laughs) edible than Amelia Earhart unless you're a coconut
1: crab. (laughs)
0: Yeah. They're less good at flying a plane, are they? in emergency situations. That's
1: true. You wouldn't call on... You might call on Mr. Potato Head if you're really desperate, but he's probably (laughs) the only potato you want. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that was actually what launched her flying career, guesting. Or no, it wasn't what launched it, sorry, but that really propelled her to stratospheric heights, as it were, career-wise, because she was put up to it by another woman called Amy Phipps Guest, who was actually this millionaire. And this woman, Amy Phipps, wanted to make The Crossing, And she was like, women can do just as much as men can do. I want to cross the Atlantic with these two chaps. And her family just begged her not to go. We're like, we love you too much. You're, You're too rich. Come on, stay. So she said, "Okay, well, find me a suitable woman. And she hired a guy called George Putnam to find a woman who she wanted to be adventurous. But actually, in Amelia's diary, by the time they tracked her down, they were looking for someone with social graces, education, charm and pulchritude. So the men had obviously slightly changed the advert on the way. G-S-O-H. Yeah. yeah. Um, but George Putnam found her and ended up marrying her as well as getting her on the flight. Oh was... well,
4: And when do we ever hear about George Putnam?
1: <laughs> exactly. More airtime for George. Yeah. Um,
3: so she had a wealthy benefactor to start off with. Uh, she did. This podcast is quickly becoming a how-to Fund my next expedition, guys. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I
1: miss. Find a rich woman. I hear um, Mrs. Melinda Gates. Uh, <laughs> to <morning.
3: Thank> you.
4: <laughs> I don't know what the people at Dell are going to think about that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'll take any of them.
0: <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Anna.
1: My fact this week is that scientists have started putting fossilised poos in particle accelerators.
4: (laughs) Why on earth? How cool is that?
1: that? Um, Well, A, it's fun. And B, you can learn loads about the poo. And so these are. Wait hey co- a minute, so co- uh,
4: Anna. Yeah. So a particle accelerator, you get like an electron, and you fire it round a great big tunnel, and they smash into each other. Are they firing poos around this tunnel and smashing into each other? Or
1: are they- uh, the poos are not taking the place of the electrons? No. Uh, although that would be such an awesome way to find the God particle. Um, no. <laughs> no, it would, it
3: would just be gross.
1: You do not want to be the cleaner in the lab oh. that day.
3: Oh, guys. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, It's not messy. Don't panic. It's in like a little test tube. So this is this really amazing new way that they found of studying coprolites. So coprolites are fossilised faeces and you can learn a lot about the thing that pooed out millions and millions of years ago because, you know, it's preserved the stuff that they were eating inside it. And we said years ago on this podcast that the only way to study a coprolite is to cut it in half or to cut it into slices. Mm. Now, not true anymore because you can put it in these very specific particle accelerators called synchrotrons. And so there's one called the European Synchrotron Radiation Facility. And basically, you put the poo in there, and the electrons are being fired round and round and round super, super fast. And if you just slightly change the electrons' direction along the way, they let out x-rays, but incredibly powerful x-rays. So their x-rays are 100 billion times brighter than the ones that you'd use in a hospital. So they see straight into the coprolite. or they have lots of other purposes as well. But Coprolite is one thing they do.
0: it does feel cheaper though Just to cut it in half With a knife Doesn't it Yeah no, if, if you
1: don't have you've... the budget
4: <laughs> But also I mean, Then uh... you've destroyed Your coprolite Then you've Then yeah. you've got Two half coprolites Don't you This way you can Keep the integrity of it That's true Yeah Although I mean, as, so. as you You just sort
1: of trod on your own point James Because then you do Have two coprolites Which does seem like It's twice as good As having one Doesn't it In <laughs> some <true>. ways
4: <laughs> That's true I've got a pizza To sell you Which is eight slices As <laughs> opposed to six slices <laughs> But one person we haven't mentioned is Mary Anning, who was one of the first people to work out what a coprolite was, Mm. right? So um, she is um, these days a famous uh, fossil collector um, from the south of England. Some people think that it's where we get She Sells Seashells on the seashore was supposedly named after her. Whether it was, we don't know. Uh, but but when, she... you say, sorry, when you say these days, you mean she's famous these days, not that she's a fossil collector these days. Yeah, like, she gonna... is herself quite close to being a fossil by now. She is quite dead. <laughs> yes. She is quite a dead person. Um, it's what she was... would have
1: wanted. It's fine. <laughs> I
3: know, I know.
4: Um, she was perhaps... Not really appreciated in her time, although a little bit more than you would expect because um she worked with a guy called um, William Buckland, who was a very famous paleontologist. And when he wrote his paper, when he gave his paper to the Geological Society in London in 1829, he did recognize her by name. So, you know, she was kind of known in her time, but she wasn't allowed to be part of the Geological Society because they didn't allow women in those days. Mm. There was The director of the Lyme Regis Museum uh, called David Tucker, he says that if she was born in 1970, she'd be heading up the paleontology department at Imperial or Cambridge by now. But as it was, she was just someone who collected fossils and learned about them and kind of wrote to this guy, William Buckland. But it was in the uh, correspondence between these two people that the word coprolite first came into use and the idea that these, these rocks with little bits of bone and stuff might be fossilized poos.
0: It does feel like Buckland could have done a bit more to sort of give her a bit more cred because he did, he did clearly get on with her really well and, and, and took her seriously, took her ideas seriously as well. But when, the, um, when, her, when these ideas were being presented to other scientists, they even used her drawings of the dinosaurs that she no. sketched out that she found with no mention of her name. That was what was shown and she got nothing. It's pretty extraordinary.
1: Yeah, what was going through their heads? Did they look at those drawings, you wonder, and think, maybe I did draw that. Maybe I did find that castle, actually. You know, I don't remember everything I've done. Uh, (laughs) Because she sort of um, invented... I think this is why she invented the idea of drawing our imaginings of what these things that we found the fossils of would look like. So the reason that we now can picture like a T-Rex or a Diplodocus or whatever is because she came up with, look, we've got to draw these things so people can understand how they appeared. But there's a really cool thing about the drawings that she did, which is that she drew fossils with fossils. So she had a friend called Elizabeth Philpot who was another... Um, a great fossil collector at the time. And they found this Belhamite fossil, which I think is an extinct kind of squid, and they found that it contained fossilized ink sacs. So you like you have squid ink, squid ink sacs. Whoa. And her friend Elizabeth Forbort realized that you could grind up and still make ink. So Mary Anning then used that process to grind it up, and with this hundred million year old squid ink, she drew some of her pictures. That is cool? amazing! I have, wow. I have questions
3: about this. How rare are those fossils? Because I just feel like today <laughs> I wouldn't get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <you're> right. <laughs> <laughs> just
1: filling up your lamy pen with some 100 million year old yeah. fossils. you're right <laughs> but aside from that she was very cool she was very attached to her dog which very sadly died when she was out on a fossil collecting trip and she wrote a sweet letter saying Did she writes it in um, the dog's
4: blood she <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah she was out fossil collecting and this cliff collapsed and nearly killed her basically this huge cliff fell down inches away from her and crushed her little dog
4: oh no sad Um, Just one last thing on Mary Anning. Um, I said about David Tucker at the Lyme Regis Museum. The Lyme Regis Museum, um, you can go and learn some stuff about Mary Anning and it is in the place where she was born. That's where the museum is, but it's a complete coincidence Mm. that it's in that same building. No. Um, Yeah, they bought this place and they didn't realize that that was where she was born. Uh, And it turned out that the actual area where the family lived has since fallen into the sea but it was a bit of the building that was attached to where they where they lived which is now where the museum is wow is that the bit that squashed the dog <laughs> wouldn't that be a thing if that yeah. was true oh
0: my goodness it sort of swings around about you know we lost the dog we've now got a seafront view
3: of the, <laughs> 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 so dark. Uh, the oldest human coprolite we have in existence is a neanderthal one from fifty thousand years ago, oh, in a really? Spanish site, and what I love most about it is it was on top of a hearth. So you've got to imagine there was a fire. They put the fire out, fire out, and the guy was like, "Just give me a second, give me a second, lads." <laughs> just going <laughs> to do a number two. Probably didn't wash his hands. You might know him, Dan. Um, <laughs> and then went about his business.
0: <laughs> I'm his descendant.
3: <laughs> but yeah, it's just it's kind of wonderful.
4: Wow, pooing in the fireplace. No manners the Neanderthals. That's why they died out. <laughs> <laughs> what did we learn about that do we learn anything about that Neanderthal poo like what they ate and stuff like that or
3: yes so it turns out they um, they obviously they ate meat that's not surprising but they did eat veggies um, uh. which uh, some people still find surprising I don't know why why would they why would that be weird but um, they also found a whole pile of parasites um, so pinworms and a whole pile of other stuff that I think if they'd have found them in a modern human they would say that person would be very very sick so either they were really hardy basically or they so the poor guy was really, or woman, was really sick. Um, but also, I, I just, I kind of, I love um, human poo, like coprolites, because, um, sorry, I probably shouldn't say it like that. But <laughs> but um, it's just that, you know, when people talk about the paleo diet, mm. for me, kind of people that are really into the paleo diet, there's always a bit of bouginess about it. Mm. Don't get me wrong, I'm quite bougie as well. But like mm. there's an element of like, oh, you know, there's this like, blah 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 and it's actually like well the real paleo diet these guys all had worms and they were yeah. all dead by 30 and you know and shitting on I, the fire exactly mm, exactly
4: yeah.
3: <laughs> like i got a kick out for there was this one paleo diet um Restaurant, and I was trying to explain to the lady in the paleo diet restaurant, as you do as an academic, you know, just completely obnoxious. <laughs> just, I was like, actually, the real paleo diet wouldn't have been the chicken breast; it would have been <laughs> all parts of the chicken. So, are you ch- serving chicken eyes and uh, <laughs> intestines of the animal? Are you, so, the poor girl? Oh, oh no! <laughs> um, speaking of
4: um, technology being used for um, studying Neanderthals, um, there, I was reading this in BBC Future, and they said that in 2013 they discovered that the genetic code for penis spines is lacking from Neanderthals, which means that we know in theory that they didn't have spines on their penises. Uh, and what that apparently shows us is that they were more monogamous than they we might have thought they were in the past, because usually the animals with penis spines are more um, poly, more like people from Yemen. They tend to have... <laughs> <laughs>
3: Oh my god! So, but... Dad, you <laughs> At one point, somebody turned around and was like, "Why don't you marry a second, a second wife, Doctor al-shamahi And my dad was like, "Ah, oh, one's enough for me." <laughs> my mum's reaction was, "Ah, oh, no, hold on, that's an insult." <laughs> um,
4: well, I love that they can look at the genomes of these, like. Ancient, like long, long dead species of um humans and can tell you something as kind of weird as that how many sexual partners they might have had.
0: That's but extraordinary. That, so yeah. do you mean kind of like a penis bone, is what
4: you're talking about when you No, say so like Those animals spikes. would have spikes on their penises, a lot of them do. Spike. Sorry, I heard spine. Okay, yeah. Oh yeah, I did say spine. Yeah, I it's suppose. all
3: spines like spines. And this, the spikes were basically clearing out previous gentlemen's um, stuff that was in there using these.
4: Exactly. Ooh. And so it's more necessary for a polyamorous um, species because you're more likely to have stuff to, to clean out from there, so to speak.
1: Oh, interesting. So Neanderthals were all romantics, monogamous
4: romantics.
3: What we're yeah, let's, go with, that, the let's romantics. go with that
4: And I read another well, that- study This is from the University of California San Diego Laboratory And they um, made some tiny brains um, They're not conscious brains But they're kind of brain cells um, And using CRISPR Which is like the gene editing um, Thing. They made some that were human and some that had Neanderthal genes in them. And the Neanderthal ones matured much quicker than the human ones did. And what they inferred from that is that perhaps um, younger Neanderthals would be more capable than younger humans, but then perhaps the Homo sapiens, as they got older, would have gotten better or smarter. I don't know if any of this is true, Ella. No,
3: no, it's completely, completely true as I would expect from, from you, James. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, they're called organoids. That's what they made. Um, these kind of uh, little brain things. Um, and it's really interesting because it plays into this theory. know what you're saying, you know, why they die out? Well, there's this one, theory that suggests that because we, we as in modern humans, homo sapiens, have an extended juvenile period, um, basically we don't become adults very quickly at all, mm. um, that that's given us a competitive advantage because it means we play and play is really good for creativity, imagination, invention, blah, blah, blah. And obviously there's absolutely, it's it's not impossible to prove it, but it's, I mean, it's, it is kind of, I guess. Uh, but it's just really interesting to think that the Neanderthals kind of growing up so quickly mm might be one of the reasons why ah oh, they became extinct but oh. but you are you are right as well when you say that um you know we, we kind of know a certain amount about neanderthal um neanderthals from their dna we know a lot about them from their dna including obviously that all of us have about two percent neanderthal dna in us mm-hmm. so we're all a wee bit neanderthal which is you know i, I think is really cute because it means they're not completely gone they're still with us a little yeah. bit yeah Can you, um, if
4: you have more you know how dan is like a particularly hairy man Does that mean that he's more likely to have more Neanderthal in him? Or does it not kind of, can you not see from the outside how Neanderthal someone is? You have to go into the genes and
3: yeah you have to go into the genes because as, as hairy as Neanderth- as, as, hairy as neanderthal might be as hairy as dan might be sorry dan um, <laughs> you know, we actually we we don't actually know that neanderthals were hairy yet. that's kind of just something oh, that got into public sorry. imagination but uh, no
2: okay
3: there's no real how do you know what i mean like how do you even prove that uh we don't know how about
0: the, how about the fact that i keep ruining parties by having a shit on the fireplace <laughs>
1: You can't blame that on your jeans,
0: sadly. Okay, it is time for fact number four, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that
4: Fraser Crane was an early investor in Microsoft. <laughs>
3: <laughs> How? Because wow. one of them's real. One of them <laughs> and <then> is real. <laughs> one of them, which
0: one? How did they cross this weird space of time? And why did he not go with Dell, which is a far superior <laughs> company? So, Fraser Crane,
4: obviously fictional character from the incredibly popular American sitcom Frasier. Uh, Microsoft, obviously a real company. And this is a uh, made-up backstory which we found out about because our old friend Richard Osman. Uh, Tweeted that he didn't understand how Frazier could possibly afford to live in such a nice apartment in Seattle on his wages. Uh, And then one of the writers, Joe Keenan, replied uh, and said that they'd kind of talked about it in the writers' room on occasion. And they said that they decided that he must have invested his money from his Boston practice very wisely, uh, perhaps in a friend's Seattle software startup. And we can only infer from that that the Seattle software startup must be Microsoft because, apart from anything else, Bill Gates was on Frazier as a character, and in that episode, he did say he was a fan of Frasier. Um So he didn't mention that Frazier had uh, invested in his company beforehand, but you know that's where no. I going. mean, that's that's a bit gauche, isn't it? You don't say that in public. It, exactly. That's uh. yeah.
0: There is an episode where one of his, I think it's his nephew or someone is coming into town and his he son. desperately wants to get a tour of the Microsoft mm. offices. And Fraser's desperately looking for any contact that he has. It's just curious that as an investor, he didn't have I think an what inn. happened is that he'd sold all his shares at that point and people had got a bit upset
4: because it had forced the price down and they, I'm just making stuff up
3: there. <laughs> I, I totally <laughs> believe like, I was like, oh,
0: okay, yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah cuz cuz you're right cuz there was that it was freddie so it's his son hmm. and he was trying to find somebody that knew anyone at microsoft and then he he convinced ros to to get in contact with an ex-boyfriend and even when cuz so this is like a mega fan talking here um <laughs> even when um bill gates comes in he calls him it, it's very clear that they don't know each other very well at all and he calls him sir and i'm just saying Mm. I'm just saying, I think these writers. Mm.
1: It might be a cover up, like how probably Boris Johnson would call James Dyson sir if he walked in. You know, sometimes you don't <laughs> want to be open
3: about quite how tight you are to power. Yeah. But
1: never know. Definitely. I mean,
3: also, I'm not part of the investor class, so I also just don't know if you even need to know. Bill Gates to invest in Microsoft. I'm assuming maybe you don't.
4: Yeah, that's true, actually. If you um, if you were to buy some stocks in Tesla, you don't have to have an interview with Elon Musk beforehand to make sure that he <laughs> likes you and he's a friend Probably a good
3: thing. <laughs> uh, you know they're, they're rebooting? Yeah. Fraser, are they? Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 I now feel like I'm going to have to go back and watch
3: it all from the start because I've just seen it very sporadically. Well, you should actually start from Cheers and properly watch his character development. It's like delicious
0: well, well, that's so we should say this is a, the most interesting thing about Frasier is that it's a spin-off series of one of the other most popular American sitcoms of all time, Cheers. And he was a character who just came in and sat at the bar. He was only meant to be in for a few episodes, but he proved to be so popular with audiences that they wrote him into the series more and more. And eventually, when they ended, they thought, what are we going to do next as a team? And Frasier was this spinoff. Um, you know, that's it- happened a couple of times.
1: Does it not annoy, it even used to annoy me when I was younger that it felt like there was a disconnect between his character there and then his character in Frasier. Or it was like kind of confusing to my young head. I was like, how is that the same person? And he seems a bit different. Mm. And there is lots of um, inconsistency as a super fan, which must stress you out, Ella, surely. Like I think his it's mentioned that he has a horrible relationship with his dad or something in Cheers. It does though. <laughs>
4: well, actually, still does. I think- He still does. I think in Cheers, they said that his father was dead. Yes. Uh, and then oh, when uh, another character from Cheers came to visit, at him in the in the second sitcom uh he said i thought you said your father was dead and he said oh we were fighting so yeah. that's how they taught that i yeah.
3: see clever good work they do a few there. things like that yeah
4: so uh the cheers was set in boston And they wanted to have this new uh, sitcom, but they didn't want it to be too close to Boston because then you would have to deal with all the previous characters and you would have to explain why they're not there, et cetera. But if you move to the other side of the country, you can get away with it. So they're going to move to Denver, Colorado. uh, But then in 1992, there was a group called Colorado for Family Values that pushed an amendment, um, which was described by the writers of Cheers as an egregious anti-gay amendment, which was basically stopping any gay rights in Colorado. And if you read the newspapers from the time, it was a huge, huge, huge deal. Um, a load of films stopped being filmed there. They were going to do a Stephen King movie there, and they didn't do it in Colorado. And then David Lee, who was one of the show's creators, said that they were going to, do, um, they were going to put Frasier in Colorado, in Denver, um, but they had to move it away from there because they didn't want to be associated with this anti-gay amendment. Uh, and then in 1996, four years later, the U.S. Supreme Court declared it was unconstitutional, so it got kicked out anyway. But they lost all of this kind of investment, and all of these um, shows and stuff just refused to go to Colorado.
1: In your oh, face,
3: yeah. Colorado! That's yeah. what you get. Because <laughs> I feel like I know the Space Needle now because yeah. of because of Fraser.
1: Yes. Yeah. And um, but they all did cameo in Fraser at times, didn't they? Except one main Cheers character, who was Rebecca. Who actually is probably maybe the most annoying Cheers character anyway? I think from oh, what really? I vaguely remember, but she never guessed it in Frasier, and she it was an actress was called is called Kirstie Alley, and she said that she turned it down because as a Scientologist, her beliefs forbid things like psychiatry. So Scientologists are very anti-psychiatry, which I didn't realise. How interesting. Yeah, although she did give an interview saying this and then the show creator, David Lee, said, I don't remember asking her. Or I think (laughs) I don't remember asking you, so.
0: (laughs) Oh, I mean, she was a big deal. She would have been Mm. asked at some point. She would have
1: been asked, yeah.
0: (laughs) You know, Kelsey Grammer in that show quite a fascinating story of how he went from being this character that was just a normal actor and it happens in these sitcoms where the actor becomes the biggest part of the show generally they become an exec producer they start directing they start his power grew so great as he was going on that he could start pulling these power moves which felt really bizarre so one of the things was he employed an acting method that he called requisite disrespect and the thing was is that he said he would rehearse each scene only once and he would not learn his lines until moments before the sh- the scene was shot. And in some cases go, okay, I'll do it better and not even use the lines. He said he'd played the role so long that he could now embody any kind of remark that would come out of Fraser better than a script writer and just became Fraser Crane himself. I'll just say whatever I want to say in this show now. <laughs> well, that's kind of, you know, it works. The best actor in Frasier,
4: of course, was Moose. Um, oh. who played the dog, Eddie. Uh, and he retired at the end of season seven and his son Enzo took over the role. Uh, but what I find interesting about that is Moose had been deliberately bred to create a new child which would look enough like him that they would be able to bring him in when he retired, oh which gosh, I think is just so a really sweet. interesting idea. Of, imagine that happened with humans, that you were you're an actor in a show. And they're like, OK, we're going to find someone for you to mate with who looks the right kind of person that when you have kids, they'll be able to come up and take your place.
1: Well, and they cocked it up a bit, didn't they? Because they had to paint Enzo's fur to match his dad. Didn't quite no. nail the patterns. No, they yeah. And also they hated each other. Um, what, the what, the dad and... Father and son. The um, creator, Peter Casey, called their relationship a classic parent-child Hollywood rivalry. And <laughs> oh. by all accounts, Moose was horrible. So Eddie, quite lovable on the show. Moose was like bitey. Everyone hated him, liked the trainer, didn't like anyone else on set, and really hated his son Enzo. They had to be kept apart.
4: Do you think they were basically mirroring the Frasier and his father's relationship Ah, oh,
0: I hope there's a behind the scenes oh. documentary where it's from their perspective, <laughs> bickering at each other. Yeah. And you've just got Fraser and the dad in the background. <laughs> well,
3: didn't the yeah. dad actually adopt? Didn't he adopt?
0: I think Roz did. Uh, the, uh, the actor
4: who played oh, Roz, Perry Gilpin. No.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, My favorite fact about Frasier is that the pilot was six minutes too long. They chopped and chopped and chopped. And finally, they had a pilot that ended up as 60 seconds longer than it should have been for the slot. So they handed it in and they said, we're sorry, we just can't do anything. It's 60 (laughs) seconds too long. And amazingly, the network went, okay. So NBC agreed with it. And they found extra time by taking 15 seconds off four other shows that were airing that night (laughs) <laughs> oh that's
3: how you know you're the favorite. Of the so, if, are you saying like if
0: you remember that one episode of
1: like Party of Five where it ends really
4: abruptly? that's probably <laughs> the night that Fraser yeah. went out. You remember yeah. that game of basketball where it was all tied up with 15 <laughs> seconds left and they just turned off.
3: Lisa Kudrow, who plays Phoebe in Friends, actually had the job of Ross. Initially and got fired oh, before they even really started.
1: Oh no. And you're um, saying Ros, not Ross, aren't you? Because for Lisa Codros to cast as
0: Ross would <laughs> <laughs> be Awesome. What a random fact to suddenly throw at that line. We're talking about pressure here. Come on. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Sorry, Roz. That was supposed yeah. to be Lisa Kudrow.
3: It was Lisa Kudrow. Um and uh, and then she got fired. And you can imagine, like, a, well, she has she has stories about how people were so shocked that she got fired from this massive show that they were like looking at her, like, "Oh, we are so sorry." Like, she just she wanted to just die, basically. Well, she fell and then, on her feet in the end,
1: right? She probably. think she <laughs> went to a fortune teller who was like, "It's okay, I see big things for you." And everyone's like, "It's absolute bullshit, Lisa. Your career is over." And then, <laughs>
3: Well she said that she she was so depressed that i think that day or that kind of in those few days she went to a party and she she was just like oh I'm this is so I'm so past it, I've got nothing else. And she sees this cute guy and she just goes, why not? Nothing else. Who cares? I'm just going to go hit on him. And she ended up marrying him. So, oh, it's, like, so it's really, hey. it's kind of a woman who's just managed to make it all work for her from from wow. being, you know, it's fired. It's amazing what
4: Scientology can do, isn't it?
3: <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> but this Lisa, Kudrow. Lisa Kudrow is like a nice Jewish girl.
1: <laughs> hey, question. Which... Actor in Frasier is from Manchester.
4: Oh, well, Jane Leaves. That Jane Leaves, it. the British one.
1: Incorrect. Uh. So, dev- dev- devastated to learn this. She's not. I think she grew up in East Grinstead, uh, which is very much the south of England. <laughs> and I'm the a they...
0: Scientology, so... Chris <laughs> <Kirstie> <laughs> Guys, yeah.
3: stop, stop making everyone on Frasier a Scientologist. <laughs> yeah, <sorry>. This <laughs> is like, really upsetting me.
1: It's a broad church. Um, No, so she was asked to do that accent. That wasn't her real accent. And she's from there. But John Mahoney, who plays Martin, the dad, is from Manchester. So he was born in Blackpool, but his family were from Manchester. And he was schooled, schooled and raised in Manchester. Isn't that weird? Yeah.
3: Do you know how we all used to really kind of laugh at her accent being a Mancunian accent? Because it was just really weird accent. I caught a clip of her once kind of where somebody very politely on one of the English morning shows was like your your accent's not really like it was you know it was a dig but you know it was morning television so they were trying to be Mm. polite and you could tell that she was very aware of it and kind of a bit like stressed about it and she kind of said well you know I was told that the 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 actual accent that I had was too it was too strong and the Americans wouldn't you know understand it so the actual mancunian accent was was you know considered to be inappropriate or something
1: oh yes i read that she was trained to do a relatable to the americans mancunian version or
3: or that's what she's claiming
0: (laughs) (laughs) i thought i'd read that she her character was living in america for so long at that point that she had a kind of transatlantic drawl that had seeped into the mancunian accent and it had distorted it
3: Mm. But She's got all sorts of
0: excuses, isn't she? Yeah.
3: It, it's like worse than your accent. Like it's like there's there's Thanks like
0: <laughs> I mean I assume you're talking to me.
3: <laughs> Sorry, Darren. Well actually, James. <laughs> Well,
4: for any Americans listening, like I'm from just outside Manchester, so she should have an accent that's a bit like mine.
3: Instead it's a bit Yorkshire and then just weird. It's
4: a bit god knows.
1: Yeah, it's a it's bit just dance, too
3: many things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: It's lovable, which is all that matters. <laughs> A lovable accent. I, think I read a quote from David Hyde Pierce, who plays Niles, who said, to me, Jane, as in Jane, Jane Leaves, to me, Jane and Daphne were identical, exquisite and charming with fragrant hair that smelled like puppies, springtime and sex. <laughs> Wow. we so he's, he's
3: gay. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> it's okay cuz he is gay, but otherwise it wouldn't be.
3: I have to say that's a show that's aged really well. You know, a lot of I have to like a lot of the shows from that period on a lot of kind of issues that you just jokes that you just wouldn't be able to get away with now. Uh, that's one of those shows that's aged really well cuz the joke is always on whoever is being, you know, the ass basically oh. um, it's never on so it's unlike a lot of the other shows of its time yeah I'll take um, that Lisa Country. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> might have made the wrong choice there
0: okay that's it that is all of our facts thank you so much for listening if you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast we can be found on our twitter accounts I'm on at Schreiberland James at James Harkin Ella
3: at Ella Shamahi and Anna you can email
0: podcast podcast.qi.com yep or you can go to our group account which is at no such thing or you can go to our website no such thing as a all of our previous episodes are up there so do check them out also do check out Ella's book it's called The Handshake A Gripping History it is absolutely awesome you got a bit of a hint of the stuff that's in there in this episode there is so much more it really is a brilliant book we will be back again next week with another episode and we will see you then goodbye